Welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and on this episode, we are featuring Camille Dungy, the author of the new book, Soil, the story of a black mother's garden. Camille Dungy is a mother, writer, poet, and a gardener, as well as a university distinguished professor at Colorado State University. The first time I saw her new book, Soil, what really caught my attention was the subtitle, The Story of a Black Mother's Garden. I knew then that I wanted to have Camille on the program to share her perspective on gardening, nature, and nature writing, and to share her growing relationship with the earth. Soil is an important book, and I am pleased that we were able to find the time in her busy schedule for her to join me on Nature Revisited. But first, a word from our sponsor, Prairie Restorations, located in Princeton, Minnesota. Prairie Restorations is excited to sponsor today's episode of Nature Revisited. Founded in 1977 as one of the first native garden centers in the country, Prairie Restorations has grown and expanded the diversity of our native plants and services. Our mission is to produce and provide the most ecologically appropriate seeds, plants, products, and services to restore and manage native plant communities. Shop our online garden center and receive 10% off your order when you use promo code Nature Revisited. Be the change. Be a native gardener and help restore critical native habitat. Visit prairieresto.com to shop the highest quality native seeds and plants. That's prairieresto.com. Again, that's prairieresto.com. Now back to your show. Here is my interview with Camille Dungy. So, Camille, I have been looking forward to this interview for a very long time, and I want to thank you for joining me on Nature Revisited. Your book is called Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden. And it is about your personal relationship with nature and the world. Can we go back to before you started writing the book? And can you share some of the important moments and times that connected you to nature and culture that brought you to writing this book? I'd be happy to do this. Thanks for having me on the show I enjoy this podcast, the revisited part of the title of the podcast, helping us rethink the world where we live and the lives with whom we cohabitate on this planet. So I'm just happy to be part of this conversation with you. I think there are probably a few what we might call signal moments or experiences that help to shape my perception and my sense that I needed to record that perception in the form of a 
narrative as I've done in soil. I grew up in Southern California in a planned community so that if I went out the front door, I was very much in a terraced planned community with a lot of asphalt and concrete and codes about how a home could look and, and quite honestly, how the people who lived in the homes uh, were expected to look as well. And then my backyard ran directly into an undeveloped hillside. And so from my backyard, I could go right into this native, natural, wild landscape, which is a Western wild landscape, not very many trees, desert live oak here and there, but just mostly chaparral. And so I could just see all around me this difference between the human-built community and this other reality that are both equally important and equally real. And so I never had this sense that I had to leave my home to go into some pristine landscape to be in communion with what we would consider wild creatures or undomesticated landscape. It was just always part of what I called home. And I think I've always believed that to be true. That has been the base ethic of my of my life and my writing life. And then in 2009, I published an anthology called Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry, in which I collected the work of uh, about 200 poems by Black writers that show this ongoing communion with and conversation with the greater than human world. And in collecting that anthology, I was really pushing against a narrative in the literary canon that suggested that the black people and people of color don't write about the natural world. We do, we always have, but often our writing is complicated with questions that have not been admitted into the Euro-American environmental canon until quite recently. So if a poet is wandering through the woods and thinking about how beautiful it is, but also sees a tree and thinks about torture and lynching and that awful aspect of our lived reality in this country, then all of a sudden that poem becomes a political poem and not a nature poem. But I don't think that that is an accurate representation of of how we think and how most of us live. And so it's been really important to me to complicate our ideas about what what qualifies as nature writing. And so with soil, I was home uh, overseeing the remote schooling of my daughter. And this all began in March and April when spring is beginning its slow progress through Colorado. I was also thinking about the garden and became really clear that I wanted slash needed to write a book that resisted the idea that if I wanted to write about the wild world, we would have to do a lot of camping and go hiking and be gone from home all the time. I was really interested in what it meant to invite the wildness of the world and beauty and splendor, but also sometimes incredible difficulty and the quandaries that happen when we really 
walk in partnership with the greater than human world to invite that into my home and those conversations. And so what happened inside my house spilled outside and what happened outside spilled inside my house. And that just shows up on the page in this book. And I love the title of the book, Soil, the story of a black mother's garden. But why did you choose that title? I have been thinking about the idea of soil, the, the very word soil, for quite some time. Soil is the substrate out of which we grow things and sustain ourselves and nourish ourselves. It's also a word that we use for being dirty and contaminated and ruined in some ways, damaged. So this word itself seems to show both sides that I'm thinking about in this book that, that we can have from the same matter and the same material, we can have something that gives us life and possibility and future and also something that reveals damage and destruction and grief and loss and all of those things. So reading your book, I was acutely aware of how much of my perception of nature has been filtered through a white male narrative. Who are some of the people that have influenced the way you look at the natural world? You know, often when we talk about influences, we're talking about positive influences when a question like that is described and, and we're talking about, you know, who are our heroes who we can praise unreservedly. I don't know that that's always entirely useful. I think in my years as a student, which perhaps as a writer, my years, my active years as a student last longer than some other people's, oftentimes the teachers who provided the most useful lessons, they were not positive lessons and they weren't even intended so. They were often intended as ways to stop me from doing something a particular way. So I end up hearing what the person was saying and thinking how to accommodate the input that was meant to say, just don't do that and figure out what it is I need to do differently so that that quelling instinct is rendered unnecessary. From that, I think... I could look at models like Thoreau, like John Muir, who there is no question made very key shifts in American ideation about how we talk about and think about and interact with the greater than human world, many of which were really necessary, crucial shifts to, to keep us from the brink of destruction on which our culture has always seemed to be teetering over. And yet, so often those men did the bulk of their work in a kind of solitude. It's often a fabricated solitude. It's often like not actually true solitude, but it's a sort of show of solitude that it's impossible for me at the stage where I am in life right now. I have a young child. I cannot just go 
into a cabin by myself for a year. There are three people in my household. I need to make space for those three people and the other people around me. And so reading work like that makes me think this concept of connection that requires solitude, how can I tweak that and attain my own kinds of connections without requiring that those I care about disappear from my life. So those are some of the thinkers who I still find myself thinking alongside, even if I don't trust some of their methods and messages. And then there are writers who I think are thinking about this kind of communion in ways that are really, really exciting to me. One writer who I think of is the writer Linda Hogan, who also lives here in Colorado and has some beautiful, beautiful books about living in in true connection with the greater than human world. And more recently, writers like Amy Nisukumatadal and Pam Houston and Ross Gay are doing some of this work in ways that I find also very exciting. So what effect does slavery and racism have on your relationship with nature and your garden? Goodness, that's a huge question. It's a huge question because I think the answer essentially is it has every effect and not just my garden. (laughs) Anybody who lives on North American soil should be reckoning with the legacies of enslavement and also the removals and diminishments of indigenous peoples. Like those two questions should always be present when we are talking about our relationship with the land in this country. For me, as a black woman living in Colorado, I am often thinking about the fact that I am on this land and I get to make choices in a way that many people who look like me have not been able to make with their lives. They don't get to choose or haven't been able to choose, weren't able to choose. So it's a blessing. It's an honor to me to be able to do that. And I don't take that, I don't take that honor lightly. I think I, I want to be as sustaining and as nourishing and create beauty in the ways that I do it, but I also, I want to enjoy and appreciate the fact that I get to do that. A lot of us place a lot of importance on story when it comes to our lives. Why is story so important when it comes to our relationship to nature? Human beings tell stories. Maybe it's a little bit odd to think of story as a technology, but it is a tool that people have used to explain who they are and where they are and why. Well, since we have had ideas about who we are as humans, 
Um, sometimes those, those are orally transmitted and sometimes we have writing or now we have social media, visual arts. All of these are ways of, of telling stories. I want the stories I participate in creating and putting forward to be making a positive difference. We're all participating in some kind of storytelling one way or another. Some of us, and, and now I'm going to switch back to the personal pronoun, I want to be participating in that in as positive a manner as possible, which does not, by the way, mean not addressing and focusing on the negative or the violent or the brutal or the ignorant aspects of the culture of which I'm a part, storytelling helps, helps me make meaning and helps me build the future I want to see. So why do you think it is important that we learn the whole story when it comes to people who really have shaped and defined our perspective or our collective perspective of nature? People like John Muir. Yeah, I mean, this is so, it's so interesting and it's so present right now in in the national conversation where books are being banned and censorship because so many of these books that are objectionable to those who choose to ban them tell parts of our stories that are not flattering. I just don't see... I don't see a way in which having a heterogeneous, singular depiction of who we are as a nation that leaves out the flawed aspects of our reality, I don't see how that strengthens us. Let me return to that word soil that I'm so interested in. Yes, soil is this matter out of which we grow things. Unless we allow into our soil decay and rot and worms and et cetera, that soil is not, it's not enriching. It's not healthy. Healthy soil has an incredibly diverse representation of life inside it. And in that incredibly diverse representation of life, there has to be some evidence of of decay. Like that actually is what healthy soil is built of. It's complex, complicated. There are ways that you can for a while grow things with infertile soil, but those ways require a lot of chemicals and even more destruction. And so I want my stories to be to be contributing to the complexity of our soil. Let's focus just a little bit on, on your garden. Why did you choose the prairie for the model for your garden, for the prairie project? I have a, a small track in the side lot that was just pretty ugly. We stopped using herbicides and pesticides on our lawn when, when we moved in, and so it was actually kind of overrun with vegetation more than more than it was even grass and taking a lot of water for not a lot of 
return. And so we pulled up that sod and planted what we call the Prairie Project, which is native and naturalized plants. It's come along. It's a really lovely track of land that's low water and indigenous to the landscape. I laugh that the local mountain cottontails like this particular plant. They have the same namesake. They were both named by early 19th century naturalists who hiked around this region and named a lot of the plants and animals. And so I joke that my cottontail buddies see this plant are like, our grandfathers told us about this plant and they said it was delicious. Let me try it. You know, it's just like the talk of the town. That's actually something of my desire. I wanted to welcome pollinators and birds and plants that are from this place. I wanted to welcome them back (laughs) to this place and see what happened and what came as a result. It's delightful almost year-round now for me to look out the window on that same plot and see the life that it welcomes. This part of the country, grassland prairie, is one of the ecosystems that's that's natural to it. And so that seemed to me to be in some ways the easiest. It's pretty low maintenance actually once it gets in, but also the most uh, robust kind of landscape that I could put in. One of the things I really liked about your book is how you brought your family, your daughter, your husband, and the fact that you are a mother into your relationship with your garden. That is something that's not often done in nature writing. Why was that so important to you? And why is it important to the reader? I find it remarkable that it is not often done in nature writing I and confounding. So, you know, one answer to this question is my whole writing career, I've written what I've seen and have chosen not to contort myself into a kind of way of speaking that is what everybody else seems to be doing. This might go back a little bit to that childhood (laughs) of which uh, I spoke earlier in the podcast where I lived in a planned community where every house was supposed to look the same. But the people in my house did not look the same (laughs) as the people around me. We were a black family in a predominantly white community. Since I was a kid, There was no pretending. I couldn't pretend to be just like everybody around me in that way. Why would I pretend to be just like everybody around me in my writing? I have a family, and they're important to me, and they show up on my page because they're always on my mind. I don't, I just don't want to erase them from, from the experience that I am recounting. I often receive gifts I I wouldn't have expected and wouldn't have known 
when I think about this as a crossover between how we deal with the greater than human world and how we deal with other humans, I also want that to be part of my value system. I want to be able to encourage the growth of people around me and allow the people around me to surprise me with, with unexpected goodness. I think that there's, there's some things in soil that could be quite challenging to certain readers who have come to expect nature writing to look a certain way and my insistence on bringing my family into the writing, my insistence on talking about racialized history in America. Um, those are not things that necessarily show up in the environmental canon. And so I can see reading this book feeling like a challenge to what the eye is used to seeing on the page. And I just hope that readers can be as as pleasantly surprised and and in the end delighted by what is what is discovered there as I was. We all know that words can be very powerful. Do you think we need to redefine or maybe revisit such words as nature, wilderness, and the environment? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. You may have heard me using the term greater than human world, which is the term that I prefer to nature. Often when we talk about nature, there's an implied idea that that's talking about something that's pristine, pleasant, and perhaps far away, untouched or unfettered. That's a flawed perception of the greater than human world at best. That's a flawed perception of how many landscapes existed and were tended and protected by people for millennia. In the American West where I live, indigenous people had deep connection to these landscapes that then Euro-Americans came in and were like, these are untouched landscapes. This is not true. Yellowstone, Yosemite. There were people who lived in those spaces, traveled through them for tens of thousands of years, right? Like it's just it's just a made up story. This idea that there's some American wilderness that people aren't a part of. And so in order to make that story up, you have to remove people. You have to remove histories. You have to remove, and this is the really dangerous thing, you have to remove the legacies of the stories of how to live in those spaces. I'm aware that we need to move into the future, but I think that we can do it without erasing the past. And I think a lot of the ideation that, weighs down some of our words like nature and wilderness and environment is ideation that separates the human from the greater than human world. And I, I want my language to resist that separation because it's false and dangerous. Why do you think we need to have a better idea of justice when it comes to nature? Environmental justice and social justice are directly intertwined. In a contemporary sense, when we think about who lives in the most highly polluted 
environments who is put at the mercy of the worst contaminants and other kinds of high-risk environmental practices that is most frequently people of color and people of lower economic means. And so the way that we treat the land is directly correlated with the value placed on the people who live on or near the land. That's one of the ways that I see that environmental justice and and social justice are just directly connected and inextricably so. And then we just have American history. Over and over again, we can look at whose lives have been put in jeopardy to create a kind of myth about beauty and bounty on the North American continent and in the United States. Those historical reflections always, always overlay race and economic privilege and gender with ideas about power and access and control. Why are gardens so important, particularly a Black mother's garden? In some ways, I would just say, like, for me, (laughs) the Black mother's garden is important because it's mine. (laughs) And it's, that's the, that's the truth I can speak. And, And that's the only truth I can speak. And then for me, one of the things that was really interesting in the process of writing and revising this book was actually how much work I still had to do to move from wanting to write with this kind of sense that I am the individual genius of this house and that this project is mine, the book is mine, the garden is mine, to the reality that I am part of a collective community. My my daughter, my husband, this is ours, <laughs> but also the goldfinches and pine siskins who've come to live here because of what we're cultivating here, because it's a welcoming space. So they are part of building this little landscape around me. I'm part of a community that is a human community, a greater than human community. And in soil, I write towards that, and I write towards this kind of realization and acceptance and moving into the glory of trusting community and its power to cultivate a sustainable, positive future. The book has visual components that I didn't make that my daughter and a friend and a visual artist made together and those live there so that there's this other way of seeing and experiencing the garden. Thinking from a womanist perspective, which is a black female construct that foregrounds the importance of community as a way towards growth and positive change, that allowed me 
to be a better writer and a better artist and create a better book and also create a better garden. So I think the, the black motherhood in the book then also became important because it became part of what, how I understood how to make art, how to make cultural change as much as it was about what the garden is doing. I think we all agree that we need to hear the voices from all perspectives. When I finished reading your book, I felt like it was also an invitation to others who have a different perspective on nature to share their stories and their voices. Was that part of your intention? Absolutely, and I'm so glad you felt that invitation. Absolutely, yes. Yes, it doesn't do any good to write some sort of strident political book that then excludes people <laughs> um, from, from being part of community. I don't see what I don't look for. One of the things that I would hope that some people would feel when they put down the book is an invitation to look differently and look in different places. One of the really important things, if we want to be inclusive, is we have to widen our scope and break down barriers and stop thinking this can't be about that because it also mentions this other thing, right? Beginning to understand that one of the things that indigenous writers will frequently do is talk about environmental questions very differently than Euro-American writers. And so therefore, those works are not gonna fit in with the canon as comfortably because the perspectives are different. I don't think soil will fit in the canon of nature writing very comfortably because of the number of times I challenge that canon and because of the ways in which I pay attention. And so to talk about wildness and wilderness while I'm talking about a suburban lot, that is not typically people's perceptions of what wildness and wilderness implies. I spend a lot of time in the book asking why not and thinking about ways that we could change the definitions and should change the definitions of what wildness and wilderness are. And I believe a lot of people honestly want to be doing inclusive work towards diversity and honestly bump up against these walls and think, but I can't go further. And it's just like, how do you take a chisel to that wall? How do you climb over, climb under, or just break down that wall and look at just what's just behind these perceptions that we have built over the last hundreds of years about what is environmental writing and who writes it and how. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Camille Dungy and that you get a chance to read her wonderful book, Soil, the story of a black mother's garden. Nature Revisited would like to thank Prairie Restorations for sponsoring this episode of the podcast and that you visit them 
for all your restoration needs. I hope you will share Nature Revisited with friends, family, and colleagues. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and our website, NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N Productions.com. The music for this episode is Santana, Black Magic Woman. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. Nature.